Hello and welcome to the RTE Brainstorm podcast, a home for new ideas and insights on Ireland and the world. It's a unique partnership between RTE and the Irish third level institutions. Now, enjoy the show. Hello, what does the word nuclear conjure in your mind? More than likely, it's a parade of terrors. The apocalyptic spectre of radiation and nuclear waste, the disasters at Chernobyl and Fukushima, and more practically, perhaps, the billions and billions of euro it costs to build a nuclear power plant. But although it is hard to disentangle these images from nuclear power, there are a growing number of people, including some eminent environmentalists, who strongly believe that the only way to tackle climate breakdown and cut our carbon emissions is to rapidly transition to nuclear energy. We all need to be like France, they say, where 75% of their energy comes from nuclear. So how would it work in Ireland? Should we consider it? And can the low carbon alternatives such as wind, solar and wave power stand up to the might of nuclear? With me is Paul Dean and Piyush Verma, both from UCC. And you're both very welcome to Brainstorm. Paul, you grew up on a small farm in Kerry. You've had an eminent career. You've been published in Nature. You've authored books on Europe's energy transition. You're a research fellow in UCC. But I'm going to bring up some bad memories now because you say that when you were younger, you failed your leaving cert and you wanted to be a gardener. Exactly. Uh, you know, I really struggled in school, actually. I remember, actually, when I was in primary school, my teacher asked me what did I want to be when I grew up. And I remember saying I either wanted to be an astronaut or a priest. Now, we didn't have much of a tradition in our family, either space travel or priesthood. And I think she actually suggested I'd be better off being an astronaut. But I was always very curious about the environment and very curious about, about science and about nature. But I really struggled in school. And it was only really, I guess, when I got to university and finally got through the Leaving Cert and got into research. And, and that's when I really hit the ground running. I just love the expansiveness of research and that's when I decided really I guess that energy research was something that I really enjoyed and was for me. And you have a memory of spotting wind farms being put up and wondering why can't we do more of this? Yeah I was I always kind of struggled with what I was going to do I suppose when I when I grew up and I remember one day on the farm looking up on the mountains and there was uh, they were putting up wind turbines and I went up there and there was a bunch of men and women up there and I chatted to them and said well what are you doing and they said we're energy engineers and uh, I said well it wouldn't be great if you could power the world with this stuff and they said well maybe you can so I guess that really sparked my interest in energy engineering and I suppose really certainly set me on the path that I'm on today. A very eminent path too. From a small farm in Kerry then, Piyush, you grew up in, in India and you had, I gather, no electricity in your house until you were 12. Yeah, uh, so I was born in a very small town in northern India and that is small town and especially in my home, I didn't have electricity until I was 12, 13 year old. So basically all my education, I would say uh, all my school education is was in kerosene oil, you know, so I was using that oil and kerosene oil lamp to do all my study. And I remember until a few years back when I was going home because I was living in a different city uh, when I was doing my engineering. And when I was going back home, Still, there was electricity situation was like one week, you will get 
five hour electricity in the daytime and another week you will get five hour electricity for the night time so that was the situation yeah, yeah. and when you get that electricity voltage quality was so bad so we need to get 220 volt electricity supply but my hometown and most of the homes they get 80 volt because so much electricity thefts so overall there was so many problem you know and that was the kick i think for me to do something in the energy sector because i was really struggling with that problem struggling myself and my family I was seeing them struggling with the that kind of situation then you moved to Vanuatu which is an island north east of Australia and it's an island I gather that within 80 years is going to be under the sea because of climate change what did you do in Vanuatu so yeah after New Zealand I moved to Vanuatu for a couple of months and I was a kind of energy advisor uh, appointed by Global Green Growth Institute it's an intergovernmental organization based in South Korea and they appointed me to work in the Department of Energy in Vanuatu to help advise on the industrial energy efficiency policy and it's basically for uh, you know because it's a small country with only 75,000 people and uh, people are still struggling with basic necessities there you know and for them talking about climate change that maybe by 2100 that's because of sea level rise country is going to go below sea you know so that's a, a big challenge for the country but because people are still struggling you know for them there is no sense you know why they'll talk about after 100 years when they don't have something for tomorrow you know that basic necessity for tomorrow so that was a big question and it was a hard job for me to work on that energy policy because because the, we need the to need provide an yeah, short term exactly yeah. and we need we need to provide the short term as well and we need to see the long term as well so that that was my uh, kind of responsibility to advise on the industrial energy efficiency policy and and paul it's interesting about vanuatu because the republic of vanuatu said last year they're going to explore whether they can take legal action against mm. companies but also countries uh, because of their role in causing climate breakdown. Now, T- the Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, has said that Ireland is a laggard when it comes to climate change. We have, of course, completely failed in tackling car- uh, carbon emissions, haven't we? Yeah, Ireland is very late coming to the climate change agenda, unfortunately. And I suppose it's really kind of refocused the attention on climate policy in Ireland has been the impending fines that we're expected to pay by the year 2020. You know, almost half a billion euros will be required to pay to buy our compliance to meet the targets that we quite enthusiastically signed up for in 2008. So I think we really need to get our house in order and really start to take this this thing quite seriously in Ireland. And before we talk about the option of nuclear, can you just tell me a little bit about Ireland's energy? Uh, Where does the energy come from? Yeah, sure. We use a huge amount of energy in Ireland today. Um, But what's really disappointing is that 90% of our energy in Ireland today, 90% comes from fossil fuels. These are oil, coal and gas that we import from abroad. We import lots of natural gas from places like Norway through the UK. Now, it's difficult to understand where the actual molecules come from, but they probably originate in places like Norway. Lots of oil from East Africa and North Africa, coal from Colombia. So we're a country, even though we paint this really green image abroad, we're so reliable on fossil fuels and even the recent climate action plan that the government published will only reduce our reliance from 90% today down to about 70% in 2030 so that's quite worrying in terms of where we need to be in terms of climate action to avoid some of the the, the, the difficulties that Piyush is talking about. And Piyush at the moment what percentage of our energy comes from renewables? So uh, 
as Paul was saying, you know, uh, uh, only 10% of total primary energy supply is coming from renewables. And when we talk about electricity, it's around something around 30% coming from renewable, you know. so And obviously ele- our electricity demands <clears throat> are going to skyrocket as more and more people buy electric cars. Sure. Well, it's not only electric cars. Uh, actually, data centres are actually the primary source of, of electricity growth in Ireland. And Ireland's actually quite unusual when we compare our energy system to the rest of Europe. In the rest of Europe, electricity demand is rather stagnant. But in Ireland is predicted to grow quite uh, quite uh, quite significantly and if you look at all the things that we're doing we're really doing really wonderful things in terms of wind energy in Ireland we are a world leader in integrating wind energy onto our electricity system but if you look back over the last 10 years you know we've only achieved really when you look at all our energy in Ireland about 5% of all our energy actually comes from wind at the moment and over 10 years that's pretty painful and pretty slow progress. So we want to explore a bit about the options about nuclear power. Uh, We're going to have a little listen now to the RTE archives, uh, some of the events here that have shaped our own attitudes to nuclear energy in the 70s, 80s and 90s. Have a listen to this. If we do build a nuclear power station in Ireland, it's almost certain to be at Carnsore Point in Wexford, where the ESB has already picked out a site. And already there are signs of concern in that area. Last Friday, a group calling itself the Nuclear Safety Association in Rosslare called for a full public inquiry before any decision is made. Early on Monday last, atmospheric radiation levels suddenly began to soar in the parts of Scandinavia bordering the Soviet Union. At first, the Swedish government thought that one of their nuclear reactors may have sprung a leak. But gradually it became apparent that the leak was coming from the Ukraine in the Soviet Union. Eventually, after repeated inquiries and expressions of alarm from the West, the Soviets admitted that a major explosion had taken place at the Chernobyl reactor near the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. Initial reports suggested casualty figures running into thousands, but the Soviets insisted throughout the week that only two had died and 18 were seriously injured. Speaking before you 2 stop Sellafield concert in Manchester on Friday, lead singer Bono claimed the nuclear debate is of concern to everyone. We live 130 miles from Sellafield in Dublin. Here in Manchester, they live 130 miles from Sellafield. Uh, it's a lot lot further to Downing Street. Uh, some of the reaction to plans for a nuclear power plant to be built at Carnsore Point in 1977 there and reports of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster in 1986 and of course Bono and Greenpeace uh, protesting against Sellafield in 1992. Paul, as you heard in 1970s there was this plan in Carnsore Point and I gather there was also a proposal for three other nuclear plants. Had it gone ahead... How much of our electricity now would have come from nuclear? So instead of building the nuclear stations, Ireland instead opted to build Money Point electricity generation station and Money Point burns coal generates about 4 million tonnes of CO2 emissions that's about let me put that in context that's about 4 million tonnes out of a total of about 60 million tonnes so quite a significant polluter in terms of what it puts out into the atmosphere and Money Point today generates probably around 20% about one fifth of our electricity so if that was swapped out with, with nuclear at the time I suppose we would be looking at much lower emissions intensity for our electricity system in Ireland today I mean when you think about nuclear power plants it conjures those images of massive big grey steam coming yeah. out of them and yellow hazard signs and all the rest but I wonder a little bit about the science can you just explain briefly what exactly happens to produce energy Sure yeah so actually all a nuclear power plant is it's like a primitive power plant really which generates electricity from steam which turns a turbine and how that steam is generated in a nuclear power plant is a little bit different they put 
enriched uranium into uh, fuel rods and between the fuel rods you have atomic particles move through the water, heat up the water and that produces the steam. But I think it's important to remember that um, the type of nuclear that we're that a lot of people are talking about today are a different generation of nuclear reactors, what we call generation 4 reactors. Traditional nuclear, um, uh, the likes of Selfield, Chernobyl, Fukushima, have really lost the public trust in terms of, of safety and in terms of cost. There's been massive cost overruns right around the world with traditional nuclear power plants and this has really inspired I suppose a global movement to investigate new types of nuclear reactors which hopefully will be cheaper which hopefully will be safer and hopefully will be I suppose a lot more legitimate in terms of the energy policy. And it's fascinating I mean uranium is the problem it's a, it, am I right in saying it's a sort of a, a zesty yellow powder? That's correct yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah extraordinary yeah. and it looks a bit like mustard yeah. <laughs> but it's highly radioactive. Uh, what happens after once the atoms are split what then happens to the uranium? Okay yeah so, so does uranium stay in the, in the fuel rods and you're left with nuclear waste and this is the real big challenge with traditional nuclear apart from the safety concerns and the cost concerns you're left with often quite a lot of waste and the nuclear industry has never really dealt with this waste issue properly there was plans of reprocessing but moving nuclear to reprocessing facilities can be quite challenging other plans such as in Finland to bury it on the ground kind of case it in glass and bury it and hope that it goes away that's really not an adequate situation to the, to the, to the nuclear waste problem Piyush am I right in saying that India has, has gone behind nuclear energy quite quite strongly. Yeah, I think uh, India is uh, still uh, building a uh, nuclear power plant, you know, so for them, they have seen the successes, you know, and for them, I think that is one of the uh, uh, very economical pathway to achieve that low carbon transition, especially energy transition in India. And uh, similar to India, China and, you know, you can see other countries, they have seen that successes, but I think there is not enough research, in fact, no research in Ireland, you know, so we can't just uh, build on other countries' research. We need to do our own research in the context of Ireland, whether it is feasible or not, you know, as compared to like what options we have, renewable options. Nuclear uh, is the second most highest low carbon power generation source, you know, uh, internationally. But it's definitely one of the options. But we need to see in our context. Yeah, and I think hydrogen is on the same same uh, you know uh, uh, kind of on the table. So it's we so the, need so to, the yeah. new generation nuclear power plants are not something you feel would be appropriate for Ireland. So I, I would say definitely technology has improved over the years, you know, and safety measures have improved, you know, but there is no research in the context of Ireland. So we need to we need to invest enough to understand that technology potential, technology, you know, safety aspects in context of Ireland. And do you and think, think that we have time for that? I think we still have enough time, you know, we can keep building our wind power source, you know, and maybe look into solar because that from the safety perspective, they are, they are very good renewable source, you know, in terms of, if you talk about uh, upfront cost, installation cost, or maybe operating cost, you know, is much lesser as compared to nuclear. So we can keep, uh, you know, investing on those source, but at the same time, we need to invest, you know, do some research investment on um, uh, learning hydrogen and nuclear both. And, and you sound not convinced by Paul's arguments that we should be looking at nuclear energy. I wonder what are the main risks that concern you about it? Risk for the society, you know, because society has, uh, as Paul was saying, society has seen that uh, Chernobyl of Fukushima that has happened, you know, and still that area is restricted where that has happened, you know, and uh, people are saying and scientists were saying like, okay, you can't go in that area for another 500 years or 1000 years. So that's that happened in Ukraine was such a big uh, landmass, but Ireland is such a small country, you know, with less population. So I think from safety perspective, it's much more sensitive in Ireland. Uh, Paul, someone said once to me that um, 
energy is a bit like medicine. If there are no side effects, then the chances are it doesn't work. So, you know, every part, every energy that you have, every solution, it's going to have side effects, doesn't it? Yeah. But with nuclear, the side effects are just too serious. Oh, yeah, cer- certainly within traditional nuclear. And, you know, I think, you know, we have to face the fact that traditional nuclear really has no current place in Ireland. Number one, because of the safety issues, because of the public acceptance issues, which are completely valid, because of cost issues, as Puyas has, 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 uh, has certainly mentioned. And also the Irish power system is actually probably too small for traditional nuclear power plants. Traditional nuclear nuclear power plants like Sellafield are quite large and they're quite chunky. And when power plants break down, you need to have a backup. You know, when the wind doesn't blow, you need a backup. When the gas doesn't flow, you need a backup. And Do they nuclear... have to be so big? Can it, is it possible to have smaller nuclear power plants? Well, that's the hope for these Generation 4 reactors, that they will be smaller and modular. And the idea there is that they would be built in the same way that we build jumbo jets, that they would be built in centralised locations that would help reduce the, the design cost, the construction cost, to ensure quality control. Um, but traditional nuclear needs large economies of scale really to be anywhere economically uh, viable. And you saw obviously the Fukushima tragedy in 2011 Mm -hmm. and after that the German government said we're getting out and they dedicated themselves to coal actually. Uh, I wonder can the nuclear energy sector ever compete with that? I mean at the end of the day the minute there is uh, any kind of accident or disaster you will have countries saying I'm getting out. Sure. And if you look at where they're building, you know, I think within Western Europe, nuclear has lost the fate of the public, you know, particularly mm-hmm. in, in this part of Europe because of those instance, instances in Sellafield and in, in Fukushima and Chernobyl and rightly so. Um, it's interesting, actually, if you look at the places that are building traditional nuclear today, they are either places with high levels of trust in institutions, places like Finland or low levels of democracy, places like China. So, and I think we're kind of in the middle ground and I think there's the, the public, despite all the technical issues and cost issues, the public acceptance issue, I think, really rules out the role of traditional nuclear in Ireland today. Uh, Piyush, when you talk about energy, I suppose the aim has to be to stop climate breakdown, stop carbon emissions and put us on a course, a low carbon course for the future and put us on that course quickly. And I wonder in renewable, which is your particular area, where do you see, where do you feel most excited about I think wind and solar is definitely, you know, these two technologies have a lot of potential and in terms of achieving our targets. But um, uh, just on that point, as Paul was speaking, you know, uh, we need to have backup source as well. We can't rely on uh, just, uh, you know, um, wind and solar because you need to get electricity. You need to heat your home. You need to cook your food when there is no sun or when there is no wind, you know. So we need to get our uh, uh, that kind of electricity. So we need to have some kind of backup as well. And to achieve that, uh, I think we need to have, as I was saying previously, we need to have diversity of, uh, you know, uh, different sources of electricity coming into our home. Because the big limiting factor is, is that correct in renewables is, is weather and batteries. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Weather and so the peak demand for electricity is what, between five and seven o'clock in the evening in winter. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And battery storage, you know, the, definitely technology has improved over the years and it has cost has come down significantly. But still, it's not, um, you know, viable uh, in terms of, you know, upfront cost is very high for so people who wants to really uh, purchase battery, they don't have enough money to buy that battery, you know, they want to put solar panel on your home, they want to buy battery. But I think there is enough uh, policy support is needed from the government side to make that a reality. Well, I mean, obviously, we have deep suspicion about the nuclear issue. But when it comes to wind and solar, I mean, we've seen in all corners of Ireland massive opposition to to wind farms. Do you believe that there is an appetite for the kind of uh, or the extent of, of that kind of renewable that we'll need? 
It's going to be challenging. You know, I think I live down in West Cork, for example, where we have lots and lots of wind farms. I can see lots of wind farms from outside of my town. And, you know, I think a lot of people have accepted those wind farms quite uh, readily and quite openly into their communities. And that's been really strong. It's been really positive. Um, but in some places, people are saying, well, you know, maybe we, we've had enough. You know, it, there is an industrialization of the landscape in certain areas. And I think Ireland is going to have to look offshore pretty soon in terms of developing our wind resource. I think the onshore resource where we are today, about 4,000 megawatts, that's about, you know, maybe uh, 1,500 turbines. I think we're, we're pretty close near near maybe social capacity at the moment. So we do need to look offshore. Um, one of the things I would worry about, and though, is just the scale of the issue again. You know, 5% of all our energy comes from wind today. You know, if we were to get anywhere near 100, we have, a, you know, almost a 20-fold increase in the amount of of, uh, of onshore or, or wind uh, on the system. And then backing up and making that dependable and reliable is going to be exceptionally challenging. It doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to do as much as we can, but I think we also need to broaden that conversation about how, how, how are we going to make that supply of electricity reliable and make it secure. Well, one other option when it comes to energy is for farmers to make biogas. This is produced when uh, bugs break down cow dung. Kieran O'Connell of TU Dublin asks, will cow poo be more valuable than milk in 2030? Most farmers in Ireland have slotted sheds and that's where the urine and the faeces are collected as slurry. Slurry, that stuff that makes our nose crinkle and wrinkle up when we take a drive in the countryside, has got great use on the farm. There's a gas called methane that's emitted from the slurry. And methane is quite easy to collect. The technology is like a pontoon that's rolled out underneath the slats. And this pontoon acts as a vehicle to trap the gas. And then the gas is funneled up through little holes in the pontoon and collected via these large balloons, for want of a better word. So the farmer can utilise the gas to make profit from that resource. Initial estimates put a payback period in under three years for a 50 Holstein cow herd based on a cost of energy model with a heating potential equivalent to around 7,500 litres of kerosene per year. If we had an opportunity to take a holistic view of the business and if we look at, say, the total amount of slurry produced on this island, it's nearly 75 million tonne per annum. That's from poultry, from cows, from pigs, Okay, And if we were to look at that and take a radical view and a radical approach and then be less wasteful and more cognizant of what our energy demands are, I think that we could go a long way to become a more energy efficient country in a shorter time. Piyush, I wonder what individuals and and communities can do to move away from carbon dependency and the kind of role that they can play in shaping their own energy in their own local area. I think we as citizens are still not doing enough on the energy efficiency side and more than 50% of our low-carbon goals in the energy sector need to come from the energy efficiency side. And I think... Uh, so you mean individuals uh, yeah, living yeah, their lives? Yeah, individuals living their life. You know, they need to bring energy efficiency into their homes. And that's kind of not only citizens' responsibility, because when you talk about energy, people think the general perception is that, you know, it's it's a very technical thing. You know, they don't want to get involved into technicalities of the energy sector. There's a common perception, oh, engineers deal with that. So I think we need to overcome that kind of uh, uh, mindset from the people. You know, they need to... They need to come on board in this journey and they need to have, the, we need to provide a good uh, monitoring system, good uh, understanding to them so that they can, you know, 
uh, buy energy efficiency products. We need to provide funding support and that kind of thing. Paul, do you, do you agree? I mean, do you think that people can go a long way in terms of just energy efficiency before we even start talking about generating energy? Oh, yes, yeah, certainly. Look, the cheapest form of energy is energy that you don't that you don't need or that, that you don't use. So it makes it makes a lot of sense. But even beyond energy itself, you know, we've got a really serious social issues in Ireland that overlap with climate change and carbon reduction. Now, today in Ireland, we've about 400,000 families who are struggling to pay their energy bills. We have 50 million homes across Europe who are in energy poverty. So I think looking at the, the most vulnerable in society and helping them actually meet their energy needs in a safe and dignified way is a big part of the climate challenge as well. And that's good for, in a compassionate way, but it's also good for the environment and it's good for local communities. So I think, you know, we get very excited about the, the shiny things like, like solar panels and electric cars, but actually looking out for each other in the community and making sure the people are actually protected and looked after is a big part of the, the challenge as well. And this is the notion of energy equity, isn't it, Piyush? I mean, you, you, you referenced it earlier when it came to Vanuatu and people not having the luxury of being able to think 80 years in advance because they were concerned about their energy tomorrow. You're talking about Vanuatu, but if I talk about Ireland, more than 30% people are still struggling with energy poverty, you know, maybe chronic energy poverty or intermittent energy poverty, but that's energy poverty, you know. Finally, this is a very, very basic question, but I'm just thinking about me at home. I mean, what's, is there one very clear step that we can all take to reduce our energy use in our own homes, apartments or places that we live? I would say uh, there are enough success stories in the market, you know, but we are not sharing success stories. That's that's the most important thing which we need to do. You know, uh, uh, we need to maybe scale it somehow, and maybe role of media is very important. And uh, you know, from one city like one city to another city, how we can replicate the same success story. You know, and we have already achieved that success story. So if you are going to replicate that, you are you don't need to do enough research. You know, you don't need to build on that, but just replicate that model. So I think that's one of the area which we really need to uh, uh, work on. Paul? Yeah, I think shop around for a low carbon electricity supplier. It's probably going to save you money and you'll end up sending a really clear message to the market that you want low carbon energy. Eat a healthier diet. Give your neighbour a lift to work. Work work from home. Cycle to work. Lots of little things. Lots of individual actions can end up hopefully making big impact within the wider system. Don't put on the kettle so much. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there's a lot more about energy on rte.ie slash brainstorm. But for now, Paul Dean and Piyush Verma from UCC. Thank you both very much. The programme is produced by Kieran O'Byrne and the editor is Jim Carroll. Research is by Louise Denver. Brainstorm is an RTE project in association with University College Cork, NUI Galway, University of Limerick, DCU, TU Dublin, Ulster University, Maynooth University and the Irish Research Council. This programme is available as a podcast from rte.ie slash brainstorm.